I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast dedicated to preserving and promoting the regional heritage and culture of the upper Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys. We're joined today by Leslie Betts, Lynn Stewart, and Jeff Bowman, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre. Today, we have a show called Algonquin National Park, which may sound familiar, yet curiously different to many who know Algonquin Provincial Park, that wonderful place just up the road that surrounds the headwaters of the Muskoka, Madawaska, Apiango, and Bonacher Rivers. As many of you know, Algonquin Park has never been a federally funded park, at least not like Banff, Point Pelee, or any of those other 46 national parks that exist for our enjoyment across Canada. No, Algonquin Park has always been a provincial park run by the Ontario government. So it might be fair for some of you to ask, what in tarnation could the Apiango Readers Theatre mean by Algonquin National Park? Well, that's what we're here to explain. As it turns out, long before Algonquin Provincial Park legally came into being in 1893, the idea for a national park had begun to bubble up nearly a decade previously. It was an idea that found vocal expression in 1885, at least in the mind of one very curious Ontario senior bureaucrat, Alexander Kirkwood. It was also an idea very much aided and abetted by a particular Ontario land surveyor and sometime book author by the name of James Dixon. But before we get ahead of ourselves, and especially before many of you start heading back into Algonquin Park this coming Victoria Day weekend to enjoy its wondrous waters, serendipitous hills, winding valleys, meandering rivers, and shimmering lakes, we thought you might like to know a little bit more about how Algonquin Park first came to be. So here is Leslie Betts, followed by Lynn Stewart, to tell you something of Algonquin Park's origin story. According to Gerald Killen's article in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, Alexander Kirkwood was born in Belfast, just before Christmas, 1823, and grew up a precocious farm boy near Ballymurphy in County Antrim. He ended up studying Oriental languages and would later translate French, Latin, and Russian texts, but he also developed a keen interest in the natural sciences. In 1846, young Alexander was all set to enter the Presbyterian ministry, but the Great Famine in Ireland put an end to that dream, and instead Alexander Kirkwood found himself a job as a tutor for a party of desperate Irish emigrants on their way to the United States. Initially, he stayed in New York City, but ended up farming first in Upper New York State, and then in 1852, he moved to what would become the province of Quebec. Shortly after arriving in what was then Lower Canada, he applied for and got an appointment in the newly created Colonial Bureau of Agriculture. His new bosses were so impressed with the young Irishman, especially after reading an article on flax production that Kirkwood had written for the Canadian Agriculturalist, that he was quickly promoted. The British governor of the Canadian colonies at the time, Lord Elgin, soon commissioned Kirkwood to visit Europe in 1853 and report on the growth of flax and its manufacturing possibilities for Canada. The following year, Kirkwood obtained a permanent appointment as a clerk in the Crown Lands Department, and by 1867, after Confederation and the creation of the new Federal Dominion of Canada, he continued on with Ontario's Crown Lands Department in Toronto, where he remained a senior bureaucrat until his retirement late in 1900. In the mid-1860s, Kirkwood, however, wrote a curious pamphlet entitled Flax and Hemp, in which he argued that these crops could be produced in the largely unsettled territory between Georgian Bay and the Ottawa River. Similarly, in a short treatise on the milkweed or silkweed and the Canadian nettle, he claimed that such indigenous plants, considered to be pests by Ontario farmers, could be produced for industrial use. Kirkwood also was a frequent contributor to local Toronto newspapers and magazines, commenting regularly on various agricultural and scientific subjects. A major turning point, however, came in Kirkwood's somewhat optimistic view of the average Ontario farmer's ability to take up new ideas, if not new crops, 
when he began researching agricultural expansion in what was then considered Northern Ontario. The results of his efforts were published by the Ontario government in 1878 and entitled The Undeveloped Lands in Northern and Western Ontario. It was written with his colleague, Joseph J. Murphy, who both tried to dispel the belief, as they put it, that settlement lands in Ontario were already exhausted. They drew on reports from Ontario surveyors, land agents, and others to show that millions of acres of cultivable crown land remained in the province, including in such districts as the Upper Ottawa Valley. Experience would prove Kirkwood and Murphy were positively wrong-headed in their assertions about the commercial agricultural possibilities of such places as the Upper Ottawa Valley. The climate and rugged terrain of the Madawaska Highlands were not suited for commercial agriculture at all. Past efforts to lure settlers along the old Opiongo colonization road with the sort of promotional material that T.P. French published in 1857, along with offers of free homesteads, usually left those full-fledged farmers with a future of enduring rural poverty. That is, unless they pursued alternate economic activities such as those readily available in the local timber industry. So, it's not surprising that by the mid-1880s, Alexander Kirkwood thoroughly modified his thinking, especially given a new conservation impulse sweeping North America at the time that, for example, had created Yellowstone National Park in 1872 and, in 1887, launched the makings of the Rocky Mountains Park in Banff, Alberta. As Kirkwood became aware of these conservation attempts, and he became more aware of conditions in various counties in Ontario that had resulted in the destruction of forest cover by settlers, depletion of the great pine timber stands in the Ottawa Valley, and declining fish and game stocks generally, he realized that certain lands in Ontario should be reserved for purposes other than agriculture. Acting on this new understanding, in 1885, Kirkwood chatted up his political boss, the Crown Lands Commissioner, Timothy Blair Party, a member of Ontario's provincial parliament. But when Party appeared to take little notice of his bureaucratic underling, Kirkwood decided a year later to publish at his own expense in an open letter to Mr. Party in a pamphlet distributed widely in Ontario. Toronto, 2nd August, 1886. To the Honourable T.B. Pardee, MPP, Commissioner of Crown Lands for Ontario. Sir, I had the honour to address you last year on the subject of setting apart and maintaining a portion of the public domain in Ontario for a national forest and park to be called Algonquin Forest and Park. In the present communication, I propose to show the necessity for such an institution and to describe its locality at greater length. A forest has been defined to be a certain territory of woody grounds and fruitful pastures privileged for wild beasts and fowls of forest, chase, and warren, to rest and abide there in the safe protection of the king for his delight and pleasure. Which territory of ground so privileged is mirrored and bounded with unremovable marks and replenished with wild beasts of venery and chase and with great coverts of vert for the succour of the said beasts there to abide, for the preservation and continuance of which there are particular officers, laws, and privileges belonging to the same, requisite for that purpose, and proper only to a forest and no other place. Although hunting steals the constitution, it is not proposed to convert the forest into a hunting ground, or that there shall be any hunting, shooting, deer stalking, or trapping therein for pleasure or pastime but fishing in the waters may be allowed. It is proposed to set aside a forest reserve principally for the preservation and maintenance of the natural forest, protecting the headwaters and tributaries of the Muskoka, Petawawa, Bonasher, and Madawaska rivers, wherein it shall be unlawful for any person to enter and cut timber for any private use or disturb or destroy the fur-bearing animals. If nothing is done for their protection or preservation, Posterity will search in vain for any trace in their former haunts of the moose, caribou, red deer, beaver, and other indigenous animals. This forest and its foresters will be the means of protecting them in their habitat and of taming and domesticating them to some extent 
for use and profit. The timber need not be permitted to rot down instead of being utilized in the arts, but the mature trees can be cut in due season to allow the next in size a chance for growth. In these ways, utility and profit will be combined. The forest will be of great benefit as a producer of timber and will add to the provincial revenue. Its maintenance will be a matter of national concern. A glance at the map of the Ottawa and Huron Territory of Ontario shows that the Muskoka River, which flows into Lake Huron, and the Petawawa, Bonacher, and Madawaska Rivers, which empty into the Ottawa, have their sources within a very short distance of each other. Island Lake at the headwaters of the Muskoka and Otter Slide Lake at the head of the Petawawa are not half a mile apart, and each is 1,405 feet above the level of the sea. The headwaters of the Muskoka, after flowing in a circuit of 1,000 miles through Lakes Huron, St. Clair, Erie, the Niagara River, Lake Ontario, and the River St. Lawrence, meet and commingle in happy harmony with those of the Petawawa, Bonacher, and Madawaska near the city of Montreal. As a consequence of the wanton destruction of the forest without reproduction in the older settlements of Ontario, many streams, once navigable for long reaches with numerous water powers, are now entirely worthless for these purposes, and the little stream that formerly came singing and dancing down from the great wood on the hill is now seen only for a few weeks in the early spring, after which there is nothing left but its dry, pebbly bed. It is of great importance, therefore, to the manufacturer to preserve the four rivers referred to, if possible, in undiminished volume. Around the lakes and streams of this rolling plateau and height of land, there are numerous beaver meadows and tracts of marsh and swamp closely grown over by tamarack and spruce, or carpeted by marsh plants, and occasionally opening into prairies with long, coarse, wiry grass and bushes. There is much picturesque scenery in these regions, and fish and game abound in and around their waters. Brook or speckled trout are found in great abundance, while moose, red deer, beaver, and other animals are numerous in these unfrequented parts. With a view to preserve the forests and the fauna of this locality and its lakes and streams, it is proposed that the townships of Canis Bay, McLaughlin, Bishop, Freswick, Bower, the townships south of Bower and east of Canis Bay, Peck, the east part of Hunter, and the southwest quarter of the township east of Bower be reserved by the government and proclaimed a national forest and park. Those who lament the destruction of our forests and fauna will be glad to see the province in full fruition of a scheme for their preservation in this part of the public domain, keeping in view, at the same time, its importance as a means of maintaining the waters of the rivers having their sources within its boundaries. The aggregate area of land in the territory to be reserved may be estimated at 330,000 acres and the area of water at 60,000 acres. These waters are formed of lakes that are lovely in their sheen, and brooks and rills with solitary, stainless pools, dappled with many a golden light, playing as with living luster over the beautiful mosaic of their pebbly floors. Watershed lines branch out from mountain summits. All rivers and streams have their sources among high lands and hills. Destroy these sources, and their beds dry up. All highlands and mountains should be preserved in perpetual forest as trees prevent evaporation by retaining the moisture which percolates the ground and gives rise to numerous springs and rills. Rivers owe their origin to atmospheric precipitation. The volume of water in different seasons depends on the mode in which the water reaches its channels. 1. When water from rainfall is drained off without penetrating the soil, a torrent is produced. This occurs when the forest has been cut away and the ground is bare. 2. Rainwater, which penetrates the ground by infiltration and collects in subterranean channels, gives rise to springs and rills which open out in lakes and rivers. The soil, when covered by dense forest, is porous, acts as a reservoir, and its gradual drainage equalizes the delivery of rivers and feeds them in the dry season. 3. The melting of snow on the summits of high mountains in summer need not be taken into consideration here as a constant source of rivers in Ontario, as the highest point of the tableland of the St. Lawrence is not more than 1,680 feet above the sea. 
The rolling inequality of surface of the wooded plateau under consideration is the cause of extensive lakes, which tend to equalize the flow of its rivers by acting as their reservoirs. The general elevation also of the plateau is influential in determining the annual average of precipitation, or the degree in which the rain-bearing winds in passing over it become drained of their moisture. On the other hand, radiation from the bare parched surface of a country affects the atmosphere to excessive dryness. Rain-bearing clouds, as they come within this dry atmosphere, are dissipated before their watery contents can reach the earth, while the clouds floating over a better wooded district yield a copious rainfall. One of the influences unfavorable to rain in warm climates is the absence of vegetation and especially of trees. Many districts in France have been materially injured in respect of climate by denudation. On the other hand, rain has become more frequent in Egypt since the more vigorous cultivation of the palm tree. A bare, sandy or rocky soil is no less influential in producing aridity. Create the forest and define its boundaries by statute. Provide for the extinction of all existing claims, the appointment of a forester and suitable assistance, and the framing of forest laws and regulations. The main source of revenue will be its timbers. Seekers for health and pleasure in the summer season may be allowed to lease locations for cottages or tents on the shores of the Great Opiongo Lake, and at a site on a lake for a farm hotel can be offered to the public competition at an annual rental. In addition to the ordinary labors of the workmen within the precincts of the forest and park, their other duties may be stated in the following rhymes. You shall true liegemen be unto the king's majesty. Unto the beasts of the forest you shall no hurt do, nor to anything that doth belong thereunto. The offenses of others you shall not conceal, but to the utmost of your power you shall them reveal unto the officers of the forest, or to them who may see them redressed. All these things you shall see done, so help you God at his holy doom. Respecting the name of the forest, at the time of the discovery of America, the Algonquin Indians were lords of the greater part of what was formerly known as Canada, and principally inhabited the great basins of the St. Lawrence and Ottawa rivers. After their defeat in the St. Lawrence Valley by the Iroquois, they abandoned that valley and joined their kindred north and west. History finds them, early in the 16th century, seated about the shores of Lakes Huron, Michigan, and Superior. They were divided into numerous local bands bearing generally some local name, but differing in scarcely any appreciable degree in language, looks, manners, or customs. They included the Nepersinians, Ottawa, Montagnier, Delawares, Ojibwe, Wyandots, Mississauga, and over 30 other different tribes. The Nipersinians, who are deemed the true Algongas by ancient writers, lived at Lake Nipissing. In adopting the word, we perpetuate the name of one of the greatest Indian nations that has inhabited the North American continent. In conclusion, there is a gloomy grandeur in the natural forest. The noble pines and stately oaks bespeak the growth of centuries. The winds sound solemnly among their branches, and the rooks caw from their hereditary nests in the treetops. It is in wandering through such scenes that the mind drinks deep but quiet drafts of inspiration and becomes intensely sensible of the beauty and the majesty of nature. It is here that the imagination of the poet kindles into reverie and rapture and revels in almost incommunicable luxury of thought. In view of the foregoing facts and statements, it is hoped that this letter will not be considered an attempt to do what signifies nothing when it is done. The Commissioner of Crown Lands, who establishes Algonquin Forest and Park, raises a monument that will not crumble nor decay, and his memory will be cherished in the warmest corner of many hearts. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, A. Kirkwood. Fundamentally, in his public letter to his boss, Kirkwood had built upon an 1884 proposal put forward by Robert Phipps, a forestry clerk in the Ontario Department of Agriculture. But where Phipps had justified a forest reserve primarily as a way to manage the forest and conserve watersheds, Kirkwood broadened that rationale by adding recreation and the protection of wild game. 
Indeed, it would take seven years to achieve critical mass in terms of public opinion. But eventually, Kirkwood's proposal found support among timber operators, sportsmen, naturalists, urban intellectuals, businessmen, and finally, provincial politicians. Late in 1892, the Ontario government of the day, led by Oliver Mowat, finally appointed a royal commission to study those townships required for such a forestry reserve and national park, and to recommend suitable policies for its management. Five commissioners were appointed, including Kirkwood himself, and at their first meeting on Friday, November 4, 1892, those five commissioners elected Alexander Kirkwood as their commission chair. Gladly he accepted, and early the next year, the commission's report, in record speed, was completed and submitted to Mowat on March 8, 1893. Two months later, in May of 1893, the Mowat government passed special legislation to create what would then, as now, be known as Algonquin Park, albeit the act creating Algonquin Park would originally be spelled with a K instead of the more usual Q-U. Curiously, one of the major reasons that the commission was able to report back to the provincial government so quickly centered on the fact that Kirkwood himself had spent those seven long years since 1886 not so much waiting for his wilderness park to miraculously appear. He did not idly stand by. Rather, he had carefully and meticulously assembled an impressive collection of research, as well as carefully considered ways and means, that together with the Commissioner's Report and its recommendation for the creation of Algonquin Park, left little doubt as to the efficacy and necessity of creating such a national park. In fact, Kirkwood had not only crossed every T and dotted every I in his assembled research, he had anticipated every major hurdle and objection to the creation of the park and dealt with those hurdles and objections in a deftly rational yet lethal manner. And Kirkwood, never far from his loquacious Irish roots, also knew that sometimes arguments are not won by facts and figures alone. He knew that at the right time and right place, sometimes poetry can seal the deal. And so, at the head of his impressive research pack, he included an anonymous poem taken from an 1884 edition of the Canadian Horticulturalist, its editor apparently having lifted it from an earlier edition of the New York Sun. It's simply entitled, A Treeless Country. And it goes like this. A great state was a desert, and the land lay bare and lifeless under the sun and storm, treeless and shelterless. Spring came and went and came, but brought no joy. But in its stead, the desolation of the ravening floods that leapt like wolves or wildcats from the hills and spread destruction over fruitful farms, devouring as they went the works of man and sweeping seaward nature's kindly soils to choke the watercourses worse than waste. The forest trees that in the olden time, the people's glory and the poet's pride, tempered the air and guarded well the earth, and under the spreading boughs for ages kept great reservoirs to hold snow and rain, from which the moisture through the teeming years flowed equably but freely. All were gone. Their precious bales exchanged for petty cash, the cash that melted and had no sign. The logger and the lumberman were dead. The axe had rusted out for lack of use, but the endless evil they had done was manifested in the desert waste. Dead springs no longer sparkled in the sun. Lost and forgotten brooks no longer laughed. Deserted mills mourned all their moveless wheels. The snow no longer covered as with wool, mountain, and plain, but buried starving flocks in arctic drifts. In rivers and canals the vessels rotted idly in the mud until the spring flood buried all their bones. 
great cities that had thriven marvelously before their source of thrift was swept away, faded and perished as a plant will die with water banished from its roots and leaves. And men sat starving in the treeless waste, beside their treeless farms and empty marts, and wondered at the ways of providence. That powerful yet anonymous poem, along with Kirkwood's commission report with its careful recommendations, had won the day. Not only did major political movers and shakers among federal and provincial politicians buy into his idea of Algonquin Park, but he got big timber interests on his side as well. They knew that little Irishmen spoke the truth. Everything seemed to be going his way. Only, as anyone who has ever tried to get a government to do anything knows, having a government say something is one thing. Getting the thing done? Well, that is a whole different kettle of fish. No amount of special government legislation or even tremendous amounts of political speeches or bureaucratic paper shuffling will accomplish anything if there's not boots on the ground or men and women of goodwill bound and determined to turn inspiration into perspiration. The actual Herculean task of creating Algonquin Park still had to be accomplished. But Alexander Kirkwood and Oliver Mowat found an able ally in Peter Thompson, who was named in that hot summer of 1893 the first chief ranger of Algonquin Park. In a phrase, it was his job to get the idea of Algonquin Park off the ground. He was charged with physically building it as a definite place amidst a difficult topography, where most provincial politicians had never heard of and would likely not ever see unless they left Toronto and headed up into the dark druidical forest that contained the headwaters of the Muskoka, Petawawa, Madawaska, and Bonnichere rivers. Yet, less than a year later, that Peter Thompson was back in Toronto and he had something to say. To the Honorable A.S. Hardy, Commissioner of Crown Lands, Toronto. Sir, I beg to submit the following report in connection with the Algonquin National Park of Ontario from its inception up to the end of 1893. On being appointed Chief Ranger of the Park on the 21st July last, I received instructions from yourself to proceed thither in company with Mr. James Dixon, Ontario Land Surveyor, and to begin at once the erection of a house for headquarters and a number of small shelter lodges in various portions of the park for the accommodation of the rangers while on duty. Having made arrangements for the purchase of such provisions, tools, etc. as would be required, I left for the park on the 23rd of July. I was joined at Aurelia by Mr. Dixon, and on reaching Huntsville we found the supplies from Toronto, together with four canoes and three tents, which Mr. Dixon had previously procured and forwarded from Peterborough. Mr. Stephen Waters of Huntsville, William G. All of Port Sydney, and Timothy O'Leary of Uptergrove reported for duty here, having been appointed as under-rangers for the season on trial. The party was completed by the engaging of Robert Dinsmore of Huntsville and William Morgan of Port Sydney as carpenters and builders, and Samuel Barr of Fenelon Falls as assistant. After packing our outfit, we proceeded from Huntsville to Dwight. On arriving at the latter place, we transported our effects by wagon to Oxtongue Lake, seven miles distant, and thence continued our journey in canoes up the Muskoka River to Canoe Lake in the township of Peck, which we reached on the 2nd of August, making no less than 15 portages en route. At a point on the north side of Canoe Lake, we determined to build our headquarters, the lot chosen being the south half of 19 in the second concession of Peck. After setting the men to clear the place, get the timber, etc., Mr. Dixon and myself, accompanied by one of the rangers, set out on a trip of inspection for the purpose of locating sites for the shelter lodges and of obtaining an idea of the connections of the various water systems of the park. We returned after a week's absence, having gone as far as Great Opiongo Lake on the east and Cedar Lake on the north, and touching on most of the lakes lying between. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Dixon returned to Toronto. The house at headquarters was finished about the latter part of August. It is a substantial, hewed log building, 21 by 28 feet, with hewed timber floor and scooped roof. 
We selected this site for headquarters because of its accessibility to Canoe Lake and the chain of waters of which this lake forms a part, and its nearness to the proposed line of railway from Arnprior to Perry Sound, and also because of the fine grove of balsam, spruce, and a few pine trees which stood upon it. During the absence of myself and staff in October, the employers of Messrs. Gilmore and Company, who own the pine timber in this part of Peck, built a lumber camp, doubtless through some misunderstanding, immediately alongside and within 10 or 12 feet of our headquarters. They also entered the grove and took out the pine, at the same time cutting down a great number of other trees and marring the beauty of the place which I had hoped to preserve. During the course of the summer and fall, we erected, in addition to headquarters, 15 shelter lodges on previously selected sites throughout the park. These include three cabins at various points on Great Opiongo Lake, as well single cabins at Cache Lake, Lake of Two Rivers, McDougal Lake, Burnt Lake, Cedar Lake, Horseshoe Lake, Cauchon Lake, Mink Lake, Kayashkakwi Lake, White Trout Lake, and Island Lake, as well as a final cabin on Little Nipissing Creek. These shelter lodges or huts are erected at such points as will be convenient for the purpose of preventing the entrance of poacher and trespassers into the park and will command the passage from one chain of waters to another, as well as other lakes or waters within a radius of a half day's journey. They vary in distance from one another from 7 to 10 miles, the limit being a day's journey on snowshoes in winter. The lodges are of a uniform size of 14 by 16 feet and are made of unhewed logs and covered with handmade shingles. There is no sawn lumber used in their construction. Each has a door and a window of four panes of glass, and inside are a small table and sleeping berths for four men. A small sheet iron stove, made specially for the purpose, will be placed in each. The outlay for labour, which is almost the only item of cost of these lodges, was perhaps from $20 to $25 apiece. In erecting them, as well as the larger house at Canoe Lake, we not only had to find our raw material in the forest, but we were obliged to haul the logs by hand, frequently for considerable distances. As will be seen, the lodges built so far are mainly in the southern, central, and eastern portions of the park. In order to provide a chain of communication to and from all parts of the park, and to permit of an efficient patrol being kept up summer and winter, a number of additional lodges will be required in the northern and western sections. It was necessary to spend considerable time and trouble in cutting trails and clearing portages along the lines of water communication from one shelter lodge to another. In all, we cut out upwards of 25 miles of portages and trails and cleared many stretches of river and creek beds from floating timber, brush and other obstructions in order to secure free passage for our canoes. I may say that I have found a tendency on the part of the public in general, and more particularly of men who have been in the habit of hunting and trapping in the territory now included in the park, to acquiesce in the new state of things. I came in contact with a number of trappers who were removing their traps from the park, and who appeared to have given up any idea of further trapping there. While regretting the loss of their trapping grounds, they acknowledged that the fur-bearing animals were gradually becoming more scarce and recognized that the preservation of game and fur animals within the park would eventually be to their benefit, as the animals would increase in numbers and could be taken in their proper season outside of the park limits. We found a trapper's camping ground on the north side of Horseshoe and Mink Lakes and seized several traps and a few beaver skins. The man himself could not be found and this is the only violation of the law which came under my notice. During the hunting season, deer were several times pursued up to within a short distance of the park, but so far as I know, the chase did not extend into it. I received from the department notices printed on linen, warning hunters, trappers, and others against trespassing in the park. I had these nailed up at conspicuous places in the park, and also at points in the neighborhood where they would be seen and read. With regard to game, both smooth and deer are plentiful, particular in the northern and western townships of the park, notwithstanding the reckless slaughter of late years. In my opinion, there are as many moose as deer, and in the township of Butt, just outside the west boundary, the moose are very numerous. Signs of beaver are seen in various places, but the families appear to be small. In very many localities where these animals have evidently existed in large numbers in times past, there is now no indication of their presence. 
They are, however, I am convinced, still sufficiently numerous to replenish the park, if properly protected, for a few years. Mink, otter, fisher, and marten are plentiful, and muskrat abound. There are many bears and wolves. The former do little or no damage, but the wolves are very destructive to deer. The bonus of $10 per head for killing wolves does not seem to have had much effect in reducing their numbers, either here or in the surrounding country. Foxes are numerous and prey upon the partridges. The latter are abundant, and wild ducks are often seen on some of the lakes. There are many shallow, soft-bottom lakes that seem suitable for the growth of wild rice, the favorite food of ducks, which does not at present appear to occur in the park. The experiment of procuring some wild rice and sowing it in such places would be attended with very little cost. Following your instructions, I have taken steps to obtain a quantity of white pine seed in order that some experiments in forestry may be attempted. The water in the rivers and lakes in the park was last year unusually low. The snowfall this winter has so far been heavy, and up to the 31st of December, according to measurements made by myself, amounted to 55 inches. Messrs. Gilmore and Company, whose headquarters are at the foot of South Tea Lake, are carrying on extensive lumbering operations in Peck Township. They have built a dam at the lower end of this lake and have raised the water four feet. I understand that it is their intention to construct a dam at the foot of Joe Lake as well. Lumbering is also being conducted in the park by Messrs. Barnett and Company, Whitney and Company, Fraser and Company, and others. And I am pleased to say that from all these firms and their employees, I have experienced the best of treatment, and a general desire has been shown to cooperate with myself and staff in furthering the objects for which the park was established. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, Peter Thompson, Chief Ranger, Canoe Lake. And there you have it, the birth of Algonquin Park. And though you might expect us to say that the rest is, well, just history, you know nothing is ever that simple. Indeed, since its inception in 1893, Algonquin Park has continued to expand until it now encompasses well over 7,600 square kilometers. And it is true, its history includes everything from internationally famous paintings done there by Tom Thompson and the Group of Seven to a shameful story of dastardly poachers who murdered an Algonquin Park game warden and his guide in 1926. But those are stories for another day. What remains today is the sheer unbridled joy of all that Algonquin Park has to offer by way of a very unique outdoor experience. And that's where James Dixon, who we spoke about at the top of the show, comes into play. It turns out, Mr. Dixon is more than just a footnote to the history of Algonquin Park. Rather, Dixon had spent more time inside what would ultimately become Algonquin Park and long before there even was that idea of Algonquin Park dreamed up by Alexander Kirkwood. Put another way, it is little wonder that when Peter Thompson, Algonquin Park's first chief ranger, left Toronto that summer in 1893 to set up his new Canoe Lake headquarters in Algonquin Park, he took James Dixon along with him. For it was James Dixon who had previously surveyed many of the townships that would go to make up Algonquin Park. And so, Dixon knew every inch of the park's terrain, probably better than the proverbial back of his own hand. In fact, in the very same year, 1885, that Alexander Kirkwood first spoke to his boss about his Algonquin National Park idea, James Dixon was putting the finishing touches on a book manuscript that he published the same year Kirkwood published his 1886 pamphlet. Only Dixon's book was about his actual canoe and snowshoe travels through those glorious headwaters of the Muskoka, Madawaska, Apiango, and Bonacher rivers, travels that Kirkwood could only dream about in his pamphlet. It was the one thing that Kirkwood couldn't do, that is, describe what it actually felt like to pass through the great outdoors of what would become Algonquin Park. But in 1886, James Dixon had done it in spades for all the world to see. Here, then, is Jeff Bowman reading from James Dixon's book, Camping in the Muskoka Region, describing in exquisite detail the inspiring beauty of what Algonquin Park has always been since time immemorial. The stream below the shanty is still small, having nothing except a few small rivulets to swell its waters below Otter Slide Lake. 
Again, we are tracing its winding course through an alder marsh. There are high dark woods on either side, the straight downstream and open space is gradually increasing in size. In half an hour, passing through a narrow opening in a bed of rushes, we suddenly find ourselves in open water and white trout lake. In all its varied beauty is spread out before the eye, and our canoes rise and fall on the heavy swell. A stiff western breeze is blowing and has raised a heavy sea, which is too much for our light canoes, so we steer along the west shore and find it all we can do is to cross the mouths of a couple of small bays. As we slowly proceed, the lake is gradually unfolded to view, stretching away to the north and east. Coasting along the shore, we pass the end of an open line leading westerly. This is the northern boundary of the township of McLaughlin, and we now enter the township of Bishop. In half an hour, after entering the lake, a rocky point is reached where the shore trends sharply to the west, and here we must stop for the canoes could not live for five minutes in the long white-capped rollers which are thundering by, chasing each other in rapid succession. In a few minutes, everything is disembarked and laid out on top of the bank. It's a lovely spot for a camp and commands one of the best views on the whole lake. The field glass is quickly adjusted and brought to bear successfully all around. A deep bay, thickly indented with smaller ones, extends for upwards of a mile to the west. Right in front and to the northwest is a cluster of small pine-topped islands which obstructs the view in that direction. Looking beyond their east end, a part of the west shore is seen on which is a narrow strip of small poplar, an evidence of its having a few years ago been burnt over. This extends northerly to near the outlet, which is concealed by an island densely clothed with the same variety of young timber, while on the east side of the outlet, and extending away inland, is a high hardwood mountain with a margin of pine and other evergreens encircling the waters. Right north of us, the hardwood mountain slopes down to the water's edge at a point a mile and a half distant on which a recently erected lumber shanty is standing. A deep bottle-shaped bay stretches away to the northeast and rounds up to another hardwood hill a quarter of a mile southeast of the shanty. From this, a bay extends far away eastward, its end concealed behind still another cape. The remainder of the lake bends again in a graceful curve away to the east and finally winds up by a regular sweep to the mouth of the creek we have just descended. The whole shore is covered by a dense primeval forest of hardwood and evergreens, and the scenery during the latter part of October, when the now green foliage has assumed its autumn colouring, must be gorgeous beyond conception. Heavy masses of dark clouds are drifting athwart the heavens, emitting at short intervals light squalls of rain, while away on the east shore the swell is breaking in clouds of spray at least twenty feet high on the boulder-strewn beach. The tents are soon set up, and extra care being bestowed on the beds to have them level and soft, as we are likely to remain here for a few days, and a number of balsam tops dragged forward and piled up to windward of the camp to break the force of the gale. Another dozen or so of the big white chub were caught while we were descending the last part of the creek, and the little sheltered bay in which we landed is laid under contribution for as many more so there is a baked kettleful of fried fish for supper. They have not the delicious tender flavor of the trout, and there are small sundry bones distributed promiscuously through the flesh, but still they are good wholesome food and are most thoroughly enjoyed. We are now at the close of another week, and are well pleased to have arrived at such a pleasant spot in which to spend the Sabbath. The instructions of the fourth commandment are not very strictly adhered to, and the day is spent in a somewhat similar fashion to the last. There is more clothes washing, and in addition considerable more mending done, for this packing over rough portages is very trying on our dry goods as well as the feet wear. Shortly after dinner, the cook is observed to be engaged in some mysterious operations by the side of the bake kettle. A little water has been put in the bottom. 
which is then covered with slices of fat pork. On the top of this, a layer of little flat lumps of dough is placed, then another of square chunks of venison. Then more pieces of dough and venison are placed side by side till the kettle is filled, and a thin crust of dough completely covers all. He now sets it in the pothole and covers it with hot sand and coals. Next, a big roly-poly pudding of dried apples and raisins is sewn up in a clean cotton cloth and placed in the largest pail, which has been half filled with water and then hung over the fire. By six o'clock, both the contents of the pail and bake kettle are cooked and we sit down to a supper fit for a king. It is another glorious morning. The wind has entirely gone down, and the surface of the lake is as smooth as a mirror. The high winds of the two preceding days seem to have completely dispelled the damp and mist occasioned by the recent rain, and the atmosphere has now a peculiar clearness but rarely seen. We purpose today exploring the west part of the lake into which we have learned the waters of Misty Lake empty. The camp is left in charge of the cook, and taking with us a slight lunch, an early start is made. We always prefer an early start in the morning when the air is cool and fresh. We thread our way amongst the group of islands to the northwest of the camp and steer across the mouth of another bay, which is now for the first time discovered, extending away to the west. Past a few more little islets, right in front is a beautiful birch point on the north of which we now discover another picturesque and birch-fringed bay. A high hardwood mountain is on the left. As we skirt its base up the bay, it gradually closes in, till at last it is merely a narrow neck of water, scarcely a chain in width. The few strokes of the paddle suffice to speed us through the short narrows, and we enter what the trappers call Little White Trout Lake, stretching away to the west for upwards of two miles. Numerous small birch and pine fringe points indent the north shore, while on the south, a bold burnt bluff of at least 300 feet towers above the water. High up near the top, a bald eagle may be seen rising from her nest on a narrow projecting ledge. We paddle sharply for half an hour along its base, then the shores turn suddenly to the southeast. Right opposite the rocky point round which we are steering, and at a distance of three-eighths of a mile is another low point clothed in dark green pines, maple, and hemlock. To the south of it lies a lovely bay, and on the south shore of which an old lumber shanty is visible in a patch of raspberry bushes. We steer straight south round a narrow peninsula which extends out from the west. On rounding this low rocky point, we catch sight of a high hardwood mountain, a mile to the south, towering above the surrounding hills. This is the mountain we saw to the north of Island Lake, which is only between three and four miles directly south of our present position. The head of White Trout Lake is at last before us at a distance of three-fourths of a mile. An open marsh extends all across it, hemmed in on either side by high pine-clad hills. The view up the marsh is cut off by a thickly wooded island, which lies right in the centre of the soft, spongy ground, round the base of which, in the fall of the year, large quantities of cranberries may be gathered. Steering along the north shore, we enter the river, a stream about six rods wide, winding slowly along. At the distance of about two miles, another, two-thirds its size, enters from the southwest. This one is the outlet of Macintosh Lake, which lies a little over three miles to the west. Bending to the right, the main stream follows an arm or offshoot of the marsh for about a mile and a half further when the end of the marsh is reached. From this point, it consists of a series of smooth stretches and short shoots to the point we left a week ago below Misty Lake. It can be followed for several miles further above that lake when it spreads out into a network of lakelets and small creeks which form its source. The drier parts of this marsh is a favorite haunt of the moose in the fall of the year, or during the fly season, and have at one time been well timbered with cedar and tamarack, 
now nearly all dead, and strewn on the ground or standing as bare white poles, their places being rapidly taken by large clusters of alders. Before sunset, we are back to camp discussing a hearty meal prepared of the same viands and in the same manner as yesterday's supper. Today, we have been tracing out the source of the Petawawa, one of the Ottawa's largest tributaries. We shall devote tomorrow to follow its windings a few miles further towards the north of White Trout Lake. We have frequently during the day seen large trout leaping up out of the water and now find that the cook has his night line set and will probably have the pleasure of testing their merits. The sun is scarce an hour high when we are again merrily dancing over tiny wavelets and heading for the north end of the lake. We shall not return tonight, so a tent, blankets, and a two-day supply of provisions are taken along. We have not been disappointed in our anticipations of trout for breakfast, and have found the quality quite up to our most sanguine expectations. In an hour or so, we enter a little cove just beyond the burnt island seen from the camp, and there, a short distance right ahead, is a newly built timber dams and slide, another evidence that the axe of the lumbermen will be heard in these woods during the approaching winter. In five minutes more, we are at the landing. It is but a few steps across to the foot of the portage when we reach the head of a small pond. The fall is only a few feet, and the dam has evidently been constructed for the sole purpose of keeping back the waters of the spring freshet, in order to retain them for use in floating the timber over some of the more shallow rapids further down the stream, as the summer advances and the waters begin to subside. A five minutes paddle suffices to bring us to the foot of the pond, where there is another short chute with a few feet of fall and where the narrow raceway is overhung and the water almost completely sheltered by tall pines and hemlocks. At its foot is a deep, dark pool, a rare spot for trout. We are now in another lake. Away to the west, at a distance of half a mile, is seen a belt of rushes, behind which a hollow between the hills marks the channel of White Pine Creek, which empties its waters through the rushes. This stream is famous for its trout and also as being a favorite haunt of the moose. A few strokes of the paddle, aided by the current from the falls, carries us out of the little cove and into a long, narrow lake, stretching away almost due north and hemmed in at the lower end by a high mountain, clothed like the others with hardwood and pine. On the east side, the hills rise only to a moderate elevation. They have already been depleted of most of their pine timber. On the west, the land attains a much higher elevation and becomes mountainous. The chain of waters here forms the boundary of a timber berth, the forest being still untouched on the west shore. Arriving at the foot of this body of water, a narrow alder and balsam-covered valley is seen winding its course by the base of a mountain towards the northwest, through which another fine trout brook meanders to the main stream. Here, the waters become reduced to the dimensions of a river, and taking a sharp turn to the east, flow for a few chains through a grassy marsh, when once more spread out for a quarter of a mile or so into a shallow pond. There is another sharp bend almost at right angles. This time it is to the north, and we find ourselves in a deep, gently flowing stream of eight or ten rods in width. In a few minutes, another short portage is reached, and then a few short stretches of smooth, still water, where the stream spreads out a little, and a couple of short rapids down which we run the canoes and enter Red Pine Lake. At first sight, it seems only another trifling expansion of the river with a pine-clad bluff on our right front. But just before reaching this, a narrow neck of water leads into a beautiful rock-bound nook to the east, and the bluff turns out to be an island. Skirting along between the island and the west shore, a lovely little gem of an island, on which are a number of clusters of alders and a few graceful red pine, is sighted. Stepping up the bank, above the narrow strip of dark shingle, it is seen to be literally covered with huckleberry bushes. Many large clusters of the blue fruit are already ripe, and like a band of schoolchildren, we revel in their sweets. The body of the lake is now seen extending away to the east, the north shore is overhung by groves of the timber from which it derives its name. 
Moss-covered rocks and pine-crested mountains overshadow the numerous picturesque bays on the south side. Here, as the sun is by this time near the meridian, we conclude to have dinner, and the pail of tea is soon steaming on the mossy turf. After the usual noonday rest, we again embark and pursue our course northward. Having passed several beautiful moss-covered islands and points, on emerging from a neck of deep water only a few chains in width, we enter a large sheet of water stretching away far to the north and west. We head along the east shore, steering from point to point for some distance across the mouths of numerous small bays to where it bends in a graceful and regular curve towards the northeast. On nearing the north end, the side of a hill which has been burnt over is described, and from this it has probably derived its name of Brule Lake. The shore still keeps trending to the east, the north side gradually closing in till the two almost unite, when the pent-up waters rush over a rocky bed on either side of a small island. We land at the head of the rapid, and following a well-beaten portage for five minutes, reach the foot, and there lies the Petawawa River, flowing in a majestic stream to the east. We have traced it almost from its source, seen it gathering together its scattered waters, gradually increasing in volume, until it has now assumed the force of a deep, swift river, and from this point to continue on its way, collecting the scattered waters from the large valley it drains, till finally it empties into the Ottawa, ten miles northwest from the town of Pembroke. We shall now leave it and retrace our steps to Canoe Lake, and endeavor to find the source of another tributary of the Ottawa River, the Madawaska. Here, there are numerous traces of old campgrounds, as the river drivers have been detained here for some time each succeeding spring, guiding the timber and saw logs down the rough rapid at the outlet of the lake. As the sun is by this time low down in the west, we shall camp for the night and explore the windings of the west shore on our way to the south again on the morrow. Steering westerly, it is seen that while on our way north, a large part of the lake was hidden from our view by a number of small islands scattered over its surface, many of which had been mistaken for the shore of the lake. The day is half spent in steering in and out of the numerous bays which indent the western shore, and admiring and speculating on the value of the dense forest of large and valuable white pine which encircles it and extends away to the west. The north boundary of the township of Bishop crosses this lake and its northern part lies the township of Vosier. By the time we have retraced our way to the island on which we dined yesterday, it is long past noon, but a remembrance of its mass of luscious berries induces us to return and dine again today. But just before reaching it, a canoe is seen rapidly approaching from the east. A white puff of smoke rises from its bow, followed by the crack of a rifle. This is taken as a signal that they wish to speak to us, and firing a shot in reply, we lie still till they come up. They turn out to be two of our own men we had left in camp the preceding morning. They tell us they had left camp in the early morning to explore the deep bay, seen extending easterly from the lumber shanty on the north shore of White Trout Lake. On arriving near the foot of the bay, they had found the end of a winter lumber road leading in a northeasterly direction. Shouldering the canoe and following the road for a mile and a half, they had found that it entered on the shore of another lake. When launching the canoe, steering northward and passing a narrow point, they found a large sheet of water extending apparently for miles to the east, its south shore rising into high hardwood ridges and the north covered with red and white pine. It is named Lake Lemure. Beautiful hardwood mountains encloses its west shore and our men had sailed through amongst a cluster of islands past the mouth of a mountain stream finding its way through a gorge between the hills, and had landed by the side of a swamp at the head of another bay in the northwest corner of the lake. Here they found another lumber road, along which they traveled three-fourths of a mile, mostly through a large spruce swamp when they struck the most easterly point of Red Pine Lake, and began speculating as to whether it would be better to retrace their way to camp by the route they had come, or endeavor to find the river by which they could return when our canoe was espied. 
As they had brought no lunch with them, the demon hunger, which seems to be ever hovering around when one is inhaling the beautiful, embracing air of these woods and waters, was tormenting them, and they gladly joined us at dinner. The sun has gone down and darkness set in before our canoes are again launched on the waters of White Trout Lake. But as soon as we get past the little island and are fairly out on the bosom of the lake, the campfire, although at a distance of nearly three miles, is distinctly visible and we quickly speed across the calm, still waters to the landing. We are soon agreeably engaged in devouring a plate of rich pea soup and trout with a top dressing of rice pudding which the cook had prepared in expectation of our return. That was Jeff Bowman, reading from James Dixon's 1886 book, Camping in the Muskoka Region, describing eloquently what would eventually become Algonquin Park. Not too surprisingly, it is still possible to see and feel that very same Algonquin Park experience this very summer, even though it's 136 years since Dixon published Camping in the Muskoka Region and Kirkwood published his brilliant pamphlet about Algonquin National Park the very same year. Or put another way, whatever joy you find there this summer, it's all thanks to the written inspiration of Alexander Kirkwood and the paddling perspiration of James Dixon. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Lynn Stewart, and our producer Barry Conway, we hope you find time this spring, summer, or fall to take a canoe down one of those wonderful rivers or awesome lakes in Algonquin Park. Good day, and God bless.